We're going to spend some more time in the book of 2 Corinthians, one of the letters of Paul. You know by now that this is at least the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, but it's one of only two that are found in the word of God. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. The title of my message is, What's Your Angle, Preacher? So let me ask this question. If you're looking for a hobby, what kind of hobbies do you like? Let me suggest something to you. If you're looking for a hobby that will easily dominate hours upon hours upon hours of your time, you might consider starting a blog, researching, describing, and commenting on the failures of Christian church leaders. In fact, there's many out there that do this as their hobby, their part-time hobby, maybe even their full-time hobby. They spend a lot of time looking at the news. And unfortunately, there are many, many examples of failed Christian leaders. And the reason why people are often fascinated with failed Christian leaders is probably because of two things. The first would be is that within the human heart, we are anti-authority. And in our immaturity, we might even find it rather gleeful at times when someone that has stood in a position of authority falls and fails. And humanity tends to be inclined toward gossip and slander on occasion. So that might be one reason. The second reason is because, sadly, there are plenty of examples to be talked about. Plenty of examples of church leaders who are corrupt or at least corrupted, knowingly or unknowingly, who may believe in their hearts, in their naivety and immaturity that they're serving the cause of Christ, but in fact are distracting people from the true and transformative gospel of the kingdom. And so sometimes when preachers stand before their churches, maybe more often than not, we preach about churches and church life. But other times, preachers must stand before their people and preach about preachers. If you're in this room today, you'll notice that we're preaching a sermon series called Indomitable Faith. And one of the necessary building blocks to that immovable, indomitable faith that we all really want in our lives is authenticity. And this applies to those that provide influence So whether it be men like myself that stand before congregations and preach regularly, or those of you that serve in biblical eldership in the church, or you direct our young people, or you serve in women's ministry, or you have a cluster of 10 people that you lead as a small group leader, if you wield influence over others, you are a leader. And if you are a leader... The word of God on occasion encourages us to do some self-assessment and to ask ourselves, what are the qualities of true Christian leadership? And do I possess them? And am I motivated properly? Is my motivation Godward rather than selfward? These are some of the questions that we're going to examine today that Paul addresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think this is going to serve as helpful information for leaders, but it also will serve hopefully as a wake-up call and an opportunity to assess ourselves and to ask questions like, am I being led by God or am I pursuing false gain? 
So entering into the tax, I'd like to start with this question. What does it take to serve? Addressing the topic of what are the qualities of Christian ministers? What are the qualities of Christian ministers? Verses 12 and 13 read, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. In this book, Paul has been defending himself against unjust accusation. And we're going to see this defensive posture from Paul for several chapters until he sort of shifts gears once and for all. But here again is a discussion of his itinerary, which is part of his desire to defend himself. So we know that the background was that Paul had written what he calls a painful letter to the Corinthian church. He had to call them out on some things. And we know, as I preached last week, that when people are confronted, they either repent and change or they get vicious. And they often push back against the person who's confronting them. I'm sure many of you have experienced this as parents or small group leaders or influencers or maybe even as employers. You have to have a tough conversation with an employee that's out of line. And they get a little bristly and prickly and mean-spirited. Now, Paul lived more or less a morally upstanding life and his doctrine was pure and biblical. So his opponent, a certain antagonist within the church, tried to figure out a way of making Paul look bad. So he attacked, of all things, Paul's travel schedule. Paul had promised the church earlier that he was going to come to them at a specific time, and he sort of outlined his path of travel, and circumstances changed, so he had to change his travel plans. This is a morally neutral decision. There's nothing sinful about that. But they attacked him for it, started calling him a liar, and these kinds of things. So Paul is defending it, and that's why in this text we have references to some of the places that he visited. Otherwise, you'd ask yourself, like, why do I need to know this? Like, is it really necessary in 2020 for me to know what town Paul was in and then what town he went to or what region he was in? But this is part of his travel plan. So if you, if you can just kind of picture it, in the back of your Bible, you probably have some maps. You can look this up. That is more or less north. If this is Corinth and you wanted to go to Macedonia, you'd more or less go north. But then you'd have to go around a body of water, sort of northeast-ish, to get to Troas. So Paul is traveling back and forth around this body of water, and he's describing his journey from Troas to Macedonia. And this comes up time and time again in the book. And again, it's all part of him trying to defend his itinerary against the allegation that he was telling lies to the church, which would obviously call into question his integrity and his message. But as he gives them some more insights into his travel plans, he also gives us insight into his ministry while he was traveling from place to place. And I want to just draw to the text three things that we see Paul qualities in Paul's life 
that are worthy qualities for Christian leaders in the modern context to consider as well. So the first one is in verse 12. It says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. There are many false gospels in our world, pseudo gospels, we call them false gospels. There are many supposed good news messages that people might want to offer you. Uh, We have churches and religious institutions that claim to preach the gospel. They have good news for you, but it doesn't necessarily seem like the good news of Christ. Paul is very specific that his good news is centered on Christ. It's centered on the depravity of man, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the God-man into the world, his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his offer of eternal life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes both bad news that you and I are sinners, that we will be eternally damned and separated from God for all of eternity in the lake of fire because of our sins. And that is a just punishment for our sins. That's the bad news. The good news is that when we repent and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can experience spiritual transformation and become sons and daughters of the King and have assurance of eternal life. This is the gospel in a nutshell, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul was committed to that. And we need to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christian leaders need to commit themselves to preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ, not just the part that's easily palatable, but the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, we're going to see momentarily in the text that Paul even said in the first century, many aren't doing this. Many, not a microscopic few, but many are not doing this. And this is part of the spiritual landscape of the global church today as well. I've gone into churches and seen preachers. I remember a notable example many years ago. I went into a church. The preacher came up. He read one verse. He then closed his Bible. Didn't even preach the verse. Nothing wrong with preaching one verse. He didn't even preach the verse. He just told stories for the rest of the time. Now, they were actually good stories. It was an interesting speech. But it didn't appear to me that he was committed to the proclamation of the word of God and specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. Suppose you were hungry for some ice cream and you went to an ice cream store and you walked in and, well, they had soda pop there and they have bags of chips over here and skid loads of toilet paper in case there's a second lockdown. And, but no ice cream. Like, what's going on here? Or you went to a hardware store and you walked in and they were selling jeans and socks and underwear and the like, but no nails, no lumber. What kind of a hardware store is this? That wouldn't happen. And yet strangely, oddly, you can walk into churches today that don't actually preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you might as well be watching Oprah or reading a Deepak Chopra book. And so while we might be a little naive and think, okay, this is like Christianity 101. Why are we even talking about this? 
it's because we can easily drift. But Paul did not drift. And the giants of the faith did not drift. And whether it was popular or not, they preached the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people don't want that and they'll walk. But those that want it and will benefit from it and are hungry for it will appreciate it and pass it on to the next generation as well. Secondly, Paul mentions here open doors. Now, this is an interesting kind of theological um, point or point of insight that we can consider for our own ministry. Paul goes to Troas and he said, a great door of opportunity was open to me. Now, you might say to yourself, well, isn't that true everywhere? You know, if I just faithfully preach the gospel, no matter the city, the town, the province, won't I more or less bear fruit? Well, that's not always the case. You know, sometimes God actually closes doors. So I'll take you back for a moment to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 8. And I'll just read a couple statements out of that to illustrate this point. So back in that context, it was Paul and Timothy and Silas, three men that were doing ministry, and they were, they were headed toward Asia to do ministry. And the text specifically says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they turned their attention to Bithynia. And then the text specifically says about their desire to go into Bithynia, the Spirit did not allow it. And he called them instead to Macedonia. Now, I, I got to say, this, this gets my mind kind of spinning and racing a you know, mile an hour, because a mile a minute. Because when you think about the, the ministry, I think more often than not, we have this idea, okay, the world is sort of ripened to harvest and I have an unbelieving family member. Maybe I'll see them this Thanksgiving. And, you know, every year for the past 20 years, I'm very conscientious in, you know, sharing the gospel with them. I've never seen fruit, but it's my obligation and my duty to keep sharing the gospel. Or I've been serving in a, in a particular area of ministry or attending a particular church, but there's no fruit. But faithfulness, after all, isn't that doing the same thing over and over again, regardless whether there's fruit or not? And this, this notion that we often have that we're just called to sort of hunker down, preach and teach, regardless whether there's fruit, with no consideration for whether or not the Spirit's opening or closing doors, just kind of go do your thing. And, you know, at the end of your life, you might see no converts, but, you know, you've been faithful. I don't actually think that's a biblical construct. I'm not sure where that comes from. I, I must admit that I was taught that way growing up. But in the word of God, faithfulness may not always be connected with the kind of fruit we would like to see, but somewhere along the line, there is fruit born. And not every opportunity is the one that you necessarily are called to meet. And not every door is open and not every people group and not every country is necessarily ripe to hear the gospel. It seems from Christian history that God tends to work all over the world, but he tends to work among certain people groups or nations for decades or centuries at a time and then sort of, for lack of a better term, moves on more often than not. And when he moves on, it's often because of the hardness of the hearts of the culture and God sort of removes his blessings from nations or there's revivals in a certain part of the country and then 20, 30 years later, it's kind of died out. And there's a revival over here now. So I, I think that if we consider this reference he makes to open doors in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
and the explicit statements of Acts 16, it would be appropriate for us to say that our ministry needs to be spirit-led. That we need to sensitize ourselves to where the spirit is leading us instead of being driven by guilt or blind tradition to just keep investing in something or some form of ministry. You know, it's like the church you go into and virtually nobody's there anymore, but there's still some sort of a service or some, there's a sign on the front lawn or whatever it might be, but it's been a lot of years since a baptism's been witnessed, a lot of years since a life's been transformed, but well, grandpa went here and great granddaddy started the church, so we're still here or you know, we get our Wednesday night this or our Thursday night that, and we've always done that in our church, and nobody's really being impacted by it. We don't really want to be there, but we don't want to say that. That's not the kind of life God has called us to live. So a little moment of freedom here. You don't have to be driven by blind guilt or tradition in the ministry or people or locales that you minister in. You need to be led by the Spirit and allow God to reveal to you what doors he's opening or closing. And I would also maybe just add to that, that if you are driven by guilt to engage in fruitless ministry, you might think you're being faithful, but in actual fact, you might be in outright denial of divine sovereignty over salvations and spiritual fruit. Because unless God's doing the work behind the scenes, you can preach as hard as you want, be there as consistently as you want, but nothing's going to happen of any substance. So again, I think that this is a message, not so much of rebuke, but a, a bit of a message of freedom. Well, in Troas, Paul tells us that the door was open, but even though the door was open, Paul experienced this distraction. And the distraction for him was his colleague Titus kind of a colleague slash younger man that he'd mentored. Titus was evidently supposed to meet him there and he could not find Titus. And so while there was this open door of opportunity, Paul is thinking more about Titus. I think this is a fascinating truth as well for us to consider. Paul demonstrates here that he has a heart for others' well-being. And sometimes, and this is one of the marks of godly leadership, Sometimes you will actually leave the 99 to pursue the one. Sometimes you will step out of the public limelight in order to minister to one person. Now, I remember when this church was composed of 23 adults and 11 children. Well, you can imagine that I knew everybody. And I knew everybody when our church got to 100 people. And I knew everybody within a few weeks when our church got to 200 but after that, it got away on me. And I don't know everybody anymore. I'd like to. I like people. But I just had to cross this mental bridge and say, okay, well, I, I got to commit myself to some of the mass-type ministry that God has given to us, and I can't necessarily invest in each and every individual. One of the mistakes that leaders make in growing ministries is they can easily find themselves only focusing on macro ministry and never ministering to the individual. Now, one could argue that Paul, if he was any sort of a pragmatist, would have said, okay, well, Timothy's not, Titus isn't here, but whatever. 
there's 100 or 200 or 1,000 people. I got to do the math. A thousand is more important than one. I'm going to go for this. But he demonstrates that he, he was able to see the big picture, but he never lost sight of the individual. And so we, we have in this text an illustration of his shepherding heart for people. And to those of you that lead others, never lose sight of this, whether God calls you to lead 10 or 50 or 1,000 or 10,000. You should see the big picture. If you don't see the big picture, you're not going to lead well. But don't forget about the individual. Titus was evidently potentially in jeopardy. You know, you came to church in a comfortable car today. You can travel on airplanes and trains. In ancient times, you traveled mostly by foot through dangerous territory. Titus might have been traveling with an offering from Corinth, taking it back to Jerusalem. There's robbers on the roads. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. This individual gets beat up on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a dangerous downhill road. This is dangerous. And Paul's like, oh, what, if, what if Titus got you know, beat up on the side of the road? What if someone robbed him? What if someone killed him? So he, he demonstrates this shepherding heart, which I think we need to make sure we maintain regardless of the influence God enables us to wield. The next question we could talk about is the one, this one. What is the nature of ministry? So what is it that we're actually heralding? What is this message that God has entrusted to us? And the text presents it in this seemingly almost contradictory kind of way, but it actually blends together wonderfully. It is the glorious but humble nature of Christian ministry. The gospel that we proclaim as preachers and teachers of the word of God is both glorious and supernatural and miraculous and life-giving, but also incredibly humbling. And while it reminds us of our victory, which we've inherited through Christ, it also reminds us of our weaknesses and our fallibility. Here's how Paul describes the nature of ministry. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then this humbling statement, who is sufficient for these things? As Paul considers the glory of the gospel, the transformative power of the, of the gospel over the found, the condemning nature, the damning nature, the death-delivering nature of the gospel over those that live in perpetual rebellion against God. There's this glorious, miraculous, wonderful gospel message. He, he kind of has this moment where he's like, why am I, I'm reading between the lines, why am I doing this? Why have you given me the commission to preach this message? In fact, who in the world is sufficient to deliver this message to lost people or found people. Now, a little bit of background to this, which will help us to really appreciate it, I think a little bit more, is this reference to a triumphal procession. So in ancient times, when kings would go to war, you can imagine everyone else is at home, 
chewing on their fingernails. I wonder if my son's gonna survive the battle. I wonder if my husband's gonna come back. I wonder if we're gonna win. Or you know, if they lose against the army that they're, they're up waging battle against, maybe they'll come and destroy us and steal our children and rape our women and pl- plunder our villages. So you can imagine how enheartening it would be when you know, on the horizon far away, you saw your army returning and they were flying their colors high and the king was riding on a big war horse and they would come into the city gates and people would come out and they'd lay palm branches down and garments down and they would burn incense and the shouts and the cheers would rise up and behind them, behind the king would come all the victorious soldiers and potentially even some captives that they were bringing back to be enslaved after conquering them. Now, as this all happened, and by the way, Jesus is demonstrating his kingship on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem leading up to his crucifixion. You remember when he asks for a colt, which is a much more humble animal than a horse. He asks for a colt, but nevertheless, when Jesus, even without saying it, enters into Jerusalem, the people of his culture understood he was laying claim to the kingship of Jerusalem. And so they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. They were recognizing his kingship. They laid their garments down, the palm branches down. Well, in this imagery of the mighty conquering king coming back, there's multiple references to to smell, to, to incense. So they would burn these beautiful herbs or, you know, in the modern context, guys, if this doesn't really work for you, the smell of diesel fuel or oil or WD-40 or whatever. Pick something that you enjoy the smell of. And here we have all of this aroma being inhaled and sensed and experienced. Now that aroma, if you are a victor, would be associated with a joyful moment. But if you're at the back of the line and you're in chains because you are a captive, that smell is the smell of death to you. So in this text, as this imagery is trying to help us to understand the gospel, there's several things for us to consider about the gospel. The gospel is, first of all, victorious. Just as the king triumphantly enters back into his capital in victory and with great pomp and circumstances, So the gospel message is ultimately not one of loss. It's one of victory. So we can say we win because he won. And that is something you and I need to be reminded of all the time in a world that often seeks to rob us of our joy and our peace and make us think that we're losing or that we've lost. I mean, have you ever had a moment in a moment of raw honesty and maybe minimal faith where you're like, am am I an idiot? What I'm believing here, what I'm doing, like, am I missing something? Well, that's what the circumstances can do to you. They can steal your joy and chip away at your faith if you're just focused on the horizontal. But the message of the gospel reminds us of ultimate victory over sin and Satan. The gospel is an opportunity for us to spread the knowledge of the king. The text says, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's a global message. 
we take the message far and wide because everyone ultimately has one king to whom they will give an account. Third, the message of the gospel is victory to the saved and it is defeat to the lost. It's victory to the saved. The text says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among whom those who are being saved and among those who are perishing and then to his enemies, to one a fragrance from death to life. In other words, from, from death to death. In other words, it, the gospel confirms the death-like state of those that are dead. And from life to life means the gospel confirms the life-like state of those who are alive. So when the message of the gospel is proclaimed, it brings judgment upon those who are spiritually dead. And it brings freedom and life and a reminder of our status before God to those who are alive. So it serves both the lost in a judgmental way and the found in an encouraging way. This is the fullness of the gospel. So by way of application, those of us that know the Lord can have abiding joy regardless regardless, regardless of the circumstances because this life is just a moment of time wedged between two eternities. And in the end, we win. But we win because Christ won. And that's where the, the humility takes hold of us. We're humble. We have joy because we win, but we're humble because we didn't have to secure our own victory. Ministry is glorious, but it's humbling. I have sought to be aware as best as I can, and we can all have blind spots, to be as aware as I possibly can be of my motives in ministry and in life and in relationships. And when I have the opportunity to train up young men for ministry, and there are many in this church that I'm seeking to influence positively, knowing that my time on earth is going to come to an end. One of the things, and we talked about this this week with some of the young guys, is the need for us to walk humbly before the Lord. And so often in life and in ministry, especially those of us that serve in fairly public roles, we can easily, especially in our younger years, have this notion, well, I'm ready for more. Give me more. You know, I want a bigger title. I want more influence. I want more preaching time. I want, I want, I want, I want. And it's like, well, why do you want? Well, I, I did my schooling and, you know, I've proven myself and, you know, people like me and on and on and on. Those are always major red flags for me when someone thinks they're super qualified, who was more qualified to herald the gospel than the apostle Paul? And yet Paul, even as he heralds the gospel, has these moments where, and this doesn't just happen in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he reveals his own very honest sense of inadequacy. And I would suggest that this is a principle that we need to see more of in Christian leaders. 
if we're compelled to preach the gospel, we will preach the gospel. We will preach the full gospel and no one's gonna stop us from preaching the gospel. But at the same time, while we preach this message of victory and hope, we always must wake up every morning asking a question to this effect, why me, Lord? Because I am woefully inadequate. This, by the way, is an attitude that is more likely to keep you in the saddle for the long ride. Because if you're trusting in yourself, what happens when your confidence is stripped from you, when you fail? Or, or what happens when, and this should happen regularly, you know right well of your own sin and your own inadequacy and your own failures, or you experience the frustration of not seeing the kind of fruit that you would expect. Christian leaders, we all need to strive for this in increasing measure. We preach a glorious message, but we have to preach it with humility, understanding that the message is not ours. We are merely ambassadors for Christ, privileged beyond measure to represent him. And then thirdly in the text, we have some teaching here on distinguishing between authentic and inauthentic ministers. And in many respects, I think he's drilling down on motives here. Verse 17 reads, for we are not like so many, by the way, that is a sad statement in the word of God. Peddlers of God's word, meaning salesmen of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. By the way, this little statement in Christ, which comes up time and time again in scripture, it can almost become part of our Christianese, like we say it, but we never define it, means that our identity, this is a sidebar, our identity is subsumed in Christ. So a woefully deficient illustration would be you put on your Spidey outfit. Now, Spider-Man's pretty impressive. But you see the little boys and maybe sometimes the little older guys donning the Spidey outfit. And when you see the Spidey outfit, your mind goes to Spider-Man and you're like, I'm expecting some great things here. Now, you don't really see any great things because behind the mask, behind the costume is someone that's very much unlike Spider-Man. But nevertheless, the person is trying to represent Spider-Man in some way. Well, we, when we become Christians, we put on the costume of Christ. Our identity is subsumed in him. Does this mean we have his abilities? No, we're not Spider-Man. We're certainly not Jesus. But we seek to represent him and to draw attention to him and remind people of how awesome he is by living our lives in Christ. Again, woefully inadequate, but hopefully it will at least get you thinking a little bit more about where you find your identity. Now here, the text says, like so many, meaning that it's probably more common than not to meet peddlers of the word of God. You're probably gonna meet them. You probably already have met them. I love it when people say things to me like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go back to the days of the early church? It's like, oh, they had it all together? No. Early church, there were many 
who are peddlers of God's word. Like, let's not be naive since the beginning of the church. There have been people that have taken advantage of influence. Now, this should get us thinking, how do I spot a peddler of God's word? There's several points we could discuss. Let me share a few. One would be the kind of person that only serves when they're paid. I have had multiple encounters with seminary-trained young men who say things to me like, I'm, I'm looking for a job in a church, okay? I, I want to be a pastor, okay? But, but you're not serving at all. They're attending our church, but they don't serve, but they want to go lead another church. Why aren't you serving now? Because you don't have a paycheck yet? Because no one's given you a title? Is that why you serve? Is this like a, a job to you? It's like, yeah, I... I thought about being a plumber, which by the way, I did. And then I thought, oh, it might be interesting to be a firefighter. Daddy was, maybe I could have been. But I decided to be a pastor. The paycheck was pretty good. Is that what this is like? Is that what it means to wield influence over God's people? If you're not serving, period, regardless of your title, regardless of your salary or lack thereof, you have no business pastoring the church of Jesus Christ. I remember many years ago, I met a man who literally didn't even attend church, previously did in an earlier life, previously was a pastor, but was in a lengthy period, about a 20 year period of time, didn't even attend church. And a church hired him to be their pastor. All of a sudden he's in church every week. Didn't last for more than a couple of years because he's a charlatan. But one of the ways to spot a peddler is they'll only serve if there's money in it. And there's nothing wrong with paying your ministers. The Bible says that those who labor well be worthy of double honor, which is a reference to financial remuneration. Nothing wrong with that. We're not going to be embarrassed by that at all. But you, you don't serve for the paycheck. The paycheck follows you. It's not the carrot that people dangle in front of you to bring you into the life of the church. Secondly, peddlers of the word of God will always look for recognition. They love to take their seat in the public square, like the Pharisees of old. They want the recognition. If they're not recognized, they go suck their thumb in the corner and stop serving. Hey, you know what? Most of what we do, newsflash folks, most of what we do will never be complimented for. Most. I would say to the tune of 99.9% .9 of what we do, will never be complimented for because about 50 or 75% of that, people won't even know we're doing it. Fourth, or third rather, peddlers of the word of God are individuals that, whose lives clearly have not been transformed by it. The person they are today is the same person they were 10 or 20 years ago. They're not, they're not being progressively sanctified. They're not being transformed by it. They might be... They might even be saying that which is true, but it's not bringing about any sort of life change. Fourth, more often than not, their families are disasters. Not always, but often their families are disasters. Their marriage is a wreck. Their kids are off the wall. And these are disqualifying characteristics for leadership in the church. And so as we've often said, while we cannot be held responsible for the outcome 
we must be held responsible for the process of how we interact with our spouses and how we interact with our children. Can't guarantee the outcome. That's the sovereign work of God. But we are responsible for the process. Fifth, peddlers of the word of God often don't preach the full counsel of God. Remember I said earlier, the gospel has sort of a good news element and a bad news element to it. The good news is, you know, about Christ's work and his sacrifice and he loves you. And this is important for us to remind ourselves of. So I was saying to my wife on the way into church today, one thing I've been thinking a lot about in the last seven or eight months is how easily you can convince people of things if you just tell them the same thing over and over and over and over again. Even if they've never seen it or experienced it, you just tell them the same thing over and over and over again. Create a hashtag or two, and they'll start to believe it. Well, the same is true when you preach the truth. If you say to someone, you are loved by God, which we do in our church. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. Eventually, it takes root. In the same token, you could say to a kid, you're a little loser. You're a little brat. You're useless. I don't love you. I wish, I wish you'd never been born. That's going to affect the child. So what we hear inevitably shapes us. I, I find this, again, a little sidebar. I find it fascinating, the power of words to shape who we are. The power of words. And words, therefore, are very important because they communicate concepts that take root. And when we preach the word of God, a person can easily preach portions of the word of God because all you'll get is this. All you'll get is this, smiles. But some parts of the word of God, let's admit it from a human perspective, are almost a little embarrassing. And they make you feel a little vulnerable and they're not comfortable pulling on your collar. Get a little hot up here. A peddler, you can tell a peddler because they will never preach the full counsel. They'll preach the Bible, but they won't preach the full counsel of God's word. Sixth and final quality, you can see a peddler of the word of God who actually preaches the full counsel of the word of God, but doesn't apply it. Now, I grew up in a couple churches like this. They had the doctrine going on. They were truth churches, truth, truth, truth. You know, how many sermons did I hear preached this way? Please open your Bibles too. They read the text. This is what the passage says. This is what the passage says. This is what the passage says. Let's cross-reference it. This is what the passage says. This is what the passage says. The passage says. End of sermon. No application. No urgency. No call to self-assess. Just full counsel, but no application. That's not biblical preaching. So what's your angle? As we consider this message what is your angle in ministry, brother or sister? Why do you serve? Why do I serve? Why do I preach? Why do you serve in the air of ministry you're in? Let me say this. Having preached this message now, I must say, this is, what go, this is what's going on in my mind right now. I am so blessed that there are so many people in this church that got it going on. They are authentic. They love Christ. They serve behind the scenes. They're humble 
and hungry for the word of God. They got it going on. And so I would say to the vast, vast majority of you, God is pleased with your service. God is blessed by our service and others are blessed by our service. Be encouraged by that. At the same time, continue to self-assess so God never, or so the devil never takes you off course and blows your ministry. This is a commitment that I want to continually make in my own life. Ultimately, we need to remember that our unseen audience is God. The text says, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This reminds us that God is watching and he knows our every move and our every motive, even when we may be oblivious to it at times, God knows. And so at the end of the day, we do not serve for the applause of men and women. They come and go, churches come and go, cultures come and go. But at the end of the day, we serve in the sight of God. We want him to smile down upon us and declare us to be faithful servants to his honor and to his glory. 